Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 150 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We are very excited, continuing our, you know, our, our discussions of Web3, coming at it from all the different angles. We are very excited to be joined by Molly White, who I'm sure many of our listeners will know as the creator of Web3 is going great, uh, a compendium, an ongoing uh, collection of all the wonderful things that Web3 is doing for society right now, um, and also a, a software engineer and a Wikipedia editor herself, um, which we will all get into. So thank you so much, Molly, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a long time coming. I mean... I have definitely very much enjoyed, uh, Web3 is going, is going just great as a, uh, as a resource for, uh, understanding what's going on. I'm, I'm also like, you know, whenever we're working on, uh, Web3 stuff, writing about it, talking about it, I'm always like going back there and referring, oh, I need an example of this thing. And it's all right there. Um, so it's, it's so good. I want to, I want to get into all of it, but maybe just for a little bit of background, it would be really great to hear about your own background as a software engineer, like what kind of things you're working on and how you came to um, focusing and spending so much time kind of tracking uh, and critiquing Web3. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a software engineer sort of by trade and also, I guess, by education. So, uh, you know, I've been writing software for a really long time. And that's kind of how I came to know of the Web3 type stuff is that, you know, if you're in tech, you've probably heard about it because someone's trying to build something on the blockchain and they're really excited about it and they want to tell you about it. Um, so, you know, in my real life, I am a web developer. You know, I write JavaScript all day, basically. And so it's pretty easy for me to throw together a website if I need to, you know, if I feel feel the urge coming on <laughs> to uh, document something. Um, and that's sort of what happened with the Web3 is going just great project. I was seeing all of these projects that were coming out in sort of the Web3 space that would then get hacked or they would scam people or, you know, something would go terribly wrong. And I was, you know, I wanted to see if there was a way that I could sort of document those in a, a, you know, an ongoing way so they didn't just disappear from the collective memory after a day or two. Um, and I didn't really have a great way of doing that. And so I sort of slapped the website together over a couple of days and uh, have sort of gone from there. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you, are, are you manually doing it? Because like you're, you're routinely pulling in so many stories and stories like as they're happening. So I, I was wondering, like, are you just, do you have a bunch of Google alerts or RSS feeds or something? Are you manually updating it or have you automated it to some degree? I probably should <laughs> automate it, but I am manually updating it. Um, it has gotten a little bit easier. I don't have to go out and source stuff quite as much as I did from the beginning because now people just tweet at me a lot if something happens. Yeah. And so, you know, like yesterday I was in a meeting at work and my phone was like going crazy and I was like, what's going on? I come out of the meeting and it turns out there is this enormous hack of uh, the Axie Infinity game. And I was like, all right, you know, <laughs> got to take a second, add that to the website. But yeah, I have I have a couple of places I source it from. Um, but you know, increasingly it is people sending it to me, which is quite helpful. Yeah, I mean, we will 
put a pin in the Axie Infinity. I mean, that, you know, $625 million exploit um, of, of this, you know, as, you, as, as, as the Web3 is going just great article puts, you know, possibly the largest in DeFi history. But uh, coincidentally, I know that Ed has a big story on Play to Earn and Axie Infinity coming out um, very soon. So just, just perfect timing for um, some larger discussions we're going to be having about that. Um, you've also got the, I love as well, you've got the Griff counter um, at the, <laughs> mm. in the, in the corner of Web3 is going just great. And very, very fun, very fun to, and, and also quite shocking just to see the sheer number, the sheer amount of, uh, of grifting and scamming uh, that's happening. You know, as you've put it right, this isn't, uh, this isn't just like, oh, somebody sends, you know, transfers uh, Bitcoin to a dead wallet or something, right? This is no, this is the amount of money that is like explicitly being stolen from grifts and scams and plots and schemes. And currently I'm looking at the website as of recording, it's sitting at um, $8.567 billion. So just over eight and a half billion dollars of, 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 you might actually happening. be a, a little bit behind. Cause I think we cracked nine, uh, with the Axie, uh, <laughs> hack. I think it's at 9.1 something, uh, right about now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Ed and I, just like you, are plugged into the the tech discourse, hearing about all the blockchain this, blockchain that, Web3 this, Web3 that. But what was it about that that made you be like, all right, I need to do something about this. I need to be vocal. I need to be a critic, especially when, you know, there's constantly bullshit happening in the tech sector. <laughs> um, what makes this special? But also it's like, I think, I think what makes a lot of people moderate their view on it, if not become outright boosters, then become these like kind of like false neutral centrist. Um, and we'll get to one of our favorite uh, people doing that today. You know, it's also like there's just so much money, right? It's like a big magnet. If you know, if you say you're a blockchain company or you're doing something in Web3, then all of a sudden Andreessen Horowitz gives you, you know, $50 million at a $3 billion valuation and says, you know, have fun with it, right? Like, what made you decide that, like, you know, all right, I have to say something about this? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, it's been around for a while, right? It's not like blockchains were invented last year or anything like that. Um, and I've known about them for a long time. You know, again, if you've been in tech at all, you've heard of Bitcoin, right? <laughs> like, that is not, again, new. Um, and especially, you know, I've as a Wikipedian, I sort of have run in the similar crowds as like the free software folks and the people who tend to be really enticed by its privacy uh, promises, especially early on. So like I knew about it from those from from my participation in those spaces, but was always fairly apathetic about it. Like it was kind of one of those things where it's not I didn't think it was hurting anyone, but I wasn't particularly interested in it myself. And so I just kind of live and let live, you know, as I do with a lot of technologies that I'm not particularly interested in, but that are, you know, someone else's cup of tea. But that all kind of changed a little bit around sort of mid to late last year, um, where it felt like the, you know, the Web3 word started to pop up everywhere. And people started to talk about how 
this was going to be the actual future of the web. And so all of these web technologies would be built on blockchains. And whether you liked it or not, you were going to have to buy some crypto so that you could engage with whichever service you wanted to use online. And so it sort of stopped being this thing that people were like, you know, using off to the side. And it started to become something that people were at least talking about baking into everything, whether you wanted to use it or not. Um, and at the same time, I felt like people were also starting to really target sort of the layperson, you know, the, the broader segment of humanity as um, they would say users and I would say victims of their scams. Um, you know, we started to see people talking about how you should invest in crypto and you can, you know, make a bunch of money on your investments and all this. Uh, now we're starting to see ads at the Super Bowl, you know, and so... Once it stopped feeling like a thing that, you know, the speculative investors or the tech nerds were all getting into, but everyone else could kind of just leave alone. And it started to feel like something that everyone was sort of forced to use or, you know, would be in the future. Um, I started to feel like I needed to sort of say something, um, especially when I started to hear about it from people who are not technical and who are not particularly normally interested in sort of risky investing. They were like, hey, should I go buy some Ethereum? It's like, why would you do that? And they're like, well, I heard the number could really go up. And it's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it started to feel very predatory is what I would say. Yeah, it really trades on that that FOMO, right? That fear of missing out. And like, it, it absolutely seems like this is that, that kind of predatory, you know, this is coming for you no matter if you want it or not. And, you know, um, if you get, if you get scammed, it's your own fault, right? There's this very like kind of like wild, wild west kind of mentality to it, right? Where either you're the grifter or you're the grifted. That kind of like technological determinist element of it really, you know, it's always been part of the Silicon Valley approach to these technologies, right? I mean, they have to, right? They have to say that like, you know, this is progress, this is inevitable, you know, this is the Borg, right? You have to be assimilated to it and there's nothing, you know, resistance is futile. Um, you know, they have to do that in a, in a way because so much of the, you know, the venture capital, uh, and the, you know, the, the early technologies really depend upon creating that public perception, getting people to buy into it. Like that's where the value really comes from is that like the generation of that fictitious capital, uh, which is largely based on like vibes. If people think it's valuable, then it becomes valuable. But it does seem like there's something about Web3 just like all of a sudden, and you're right, it's just like in the last like year, maybe year and a half, it's a very pandemic-based trend. Um, that, But it seems like it's gone into overdrive. I mean, like, you know, looking at the announce, uh, Andreessen Horowitz's announcement of their Crypto Fund 3, Five months or six months after that, it's time to build essay. You remember that insufferable little shit? Yeah, that where he said that uh, the the problem with our pandemic response is we aren't using our creative energy and our resources to build real world infrastructure. And this whole time he's just building, and the whole funding models to build infrastructure for crypto. Exactly. So that it's easier to on ramp and off ramp your money. Yeah. And also, if we look at the timing of the announcement of Crypto Fund 3, you know, this was announced in like June 2021, mm -hmm. uh, only a couple months after Coinbase's massive IPO, right? They went public at a, at a total share value of over $85 billion, of which 
Andreessen Horowitz had a major position in and exited. I don't know how much they made on that investment, but it was, you know, I think their initial investment was only like $25 million or something like that, like back in 2013 and Coinbase. Fast forward nine years later, and I'm sure they they walked out of there with a billion plus dollars from that Coinbase IPO and did exactly that and just like, you know, turned it right back around into Crypto Fund 3. But then if we look at the announcement authored by Chris Dixon, right, one of the general partners at uh, A16Z, you know, and he writes that, you know, the, the, the goal of Crypto Fund 3 is, quote, to find the next generation of visionary crypto founders uh, because, quote, crypto is not only the future of finance, but as with the internet in the early days, is poised to transform all aspects of our lives. And I think that really gets at what you were talking about, Molly, of that, like, there is an extremely totalizing view of this. Like, Web 2.0 was about, like, disrupting certain spaces, right? We're going to disrupt this space, or we're going to disrupt that space. But Web 3 seems to be something that is uniquely about, like, we are going to completely revolutionize and assimilate every possible thing and every possible person into this, this, this Borg, into this, this machine. Yeah, that does seem to be sort of the prevailing narrative, which is kind of alarming because, uh, you know, the, the technology just doesn't really support the types of things that people are trying to say that it will. And it's a really odd sort of, it's like we're doing everything in the wrong order, you know, because with Web 2, no one really started calling it Web 2, you know, back when the actual technologies were being developed. They, you know, the technologies demonstrated their usefulness and then started to become adopted. And then, you know, there was sort of a gradual shift as people were interested in, you know, easier ways to share content and those types of things. And, you know, with the benefit of time, we started to, you know, look at it and realize how different it was from the sort of early days of the web. And and so we called it web two because it had changed. But now it's basically people saying, we've decided what the future of the web is going to be, despite the fact that the technology probably can't support it. And so now we're going to make that the case and everyone will have to adopt it. It's not that they will do it because they want to. Um, and that's, that's like the wrong way. That's like the wrong way around. Um, you see the same thing with people basically saying, it's it's the they've got it the wrong way around. You know, they've got they basically say, I've got a blockchain. What can I do with this? And so they start looking for problems to solve, you know. Often problems that they have no experience with and have not previously had any interest in solving. But then they get this blockchain and they say, Oh, I'm gonna go help, you know, farmers in Africa insure their crops. That was one that came up recently. Someone was talking about how that was gonna be the new future. And I'm like, that's have you Lemonade's ever seen new crypto climate initiative? That's exactly been what looking they were into that. Yeah. yeah that's exactly <laughs> what they were talking Andrew. about. Mm-hmm. And it's like, have you ever spoken to an African farmer before? Like, who, where are you getting these ideas? And why do you suddenly care about it now that there's, oh, a crypto token involved? You know, it's like, I have some questions here. <laughs> anyway, it's really frustrating. Why, why do you think, you know, I feel that, you know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, before we get into the to the New York Times guide. But I, I feel like with reporting on crypto, there are standards that don't really hold up to scrutiny as we would 
they're not what we would expect in any other analysis. We don't see people an- analyzing capital markets, hopefully, or other corporations, hopefully, with sort of like laziness and lack of rigor um, and curiosity um, and and scrutiny. And a lot of the times, the criticism is derided pretty hard or considered bias or considered pointed or agenda or you know as a part of an agenda and i'm curious why it that seems to be so much louder in crypto than in other areas i've seen it pop up of course with a lot of anything that criticizes silicon valley of course there's like an army of people in one way or another who insist that you're not really understanding this is the future this is the next wave and that was a problem with tech media before you know we've talked about on here about how that helped lead to the rise of Uber and and the gig economy more generally. Sam Harnett has written extensively about this. But why is it with crypto there seems to be a more vicious um, chorus of that and a more successful, I feel like, project of convincing people they shouldn't look too hard? I think crypto has done a really, I say crypto, but you know, the sort of crypto evangelists have done a really good job of convincing people that crypto is extremely complicated and difficult to understand. Um, and so there's a lot of this, you know, you'll, you'll talk about something and people will say, oh, you don't understand it. You need to go do more research. And it's like, no, I think I do understand it. You're not like you, you are explaining something that does not actually hold up. You know, the technology does not work the way that you are saying it does. And, um, but people have sort of been hearing this refrain over and over of crypto is really complicated. You don't understand it. It's so hard to understand. And, you know, to some extent that's true, right? Like there are parts of crypto that are a little bit hard for people to sort of visualize. Like, you know, I think people have a really hard time understanding NFTs, for example, because there's not sort of an analog to those in real life that makes a whole lot of sense. And so it's a little bit hard for people to sort of understand exactly what's going on there. I think it's actually really worked in their favor uh, that people are willing to say, oh, well, this doesn't seem quite right, but maybe I just don't understand it. And I don't want to sound dumb, so I'm not going to ask what might be a dumb question, like, how does this all work? And it turns out, like, they don't actually always have the answer to that question, and they're sort of just hoping that you won't notice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a part of it, is is sort of the the... Uh, desire to seem informed and sort of the that leads into the lack of willingness to ask the tough questions. And, you know, I, I think there's also just a huge monetary incentive with it to, to speak p- positively about it, right? Because if you have investments and you hype them up sufficiently, then they will go up in value and you're, you know, you will make money. There's not sort of a counter, you know, a balancing side of that where you can criticize them accurately enough and you'll make a lot of money. I've I've heard people starting to say that like crypto skeptics are making a lot of money. I don't <laughs> think that's based in any truth. Yeah, actually secretly I'm the one doing the hacks. <laughs> yeah, this is praxis. Uh, this is critical yeah. praxis. I'm like, damn that axie hack, that's crazy, huh? What do you <laughs> oh, meanwhile, Ed's over here in like a, a Robin Hood men in tights outfit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Bring some some penthouse. <laughs> yeah. It's actually me. I'm throwing all the Bitcoins into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to do it. 
But it's like, yeah, like I'm looking at my bank account and I'm not seeing this crypto criticism translating directly into dollars in the same way that like the crypto evangelism absolutely is translating directly into <laughs> into dollars. Oftentimes fiat, which kind of seems a little uh, disingenuous if you ask me. I agree. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really bizarre to get that criticism from people who are hyping crypto so much because it's like, look at the people around you who are like, you know, pumping up these bananas projects that are just not doing anything of value and then making a huge amount of money. And you're worried about that like one crypto skeptic who has a Patreon? Like that's the corruption here? I, it baffles me. Um and, you know, I try to be really clear about the fact that I don't make money from my crypto skepticism, but that doesn't really stop people from just assuming that I must have some nefarious motive for this that isn't just like wanting society to be a little bit better. Um, it's kind of bizarre how, how people are like, they just assume that there's something going on that they don't understand. It's very sort of conspiracist. One of my favorite criticisms or versions of that is uh, Vice recently launched this Decentraland metaverse thing where they have an office and that kind of looks like Second Life and Roblox and Minecraft mixed together. And the day that they announced it, maybe 15 people uh, with NFT avatars sent it to me. said, hmm, interesting. If I recall, your last article said that... Uh, NFTs are good for nothing except for waste. Uh, do you want to change your mind? <laughs> and, and, and when I tell them no, uh, they insist that I'm being hypocritical because uh, now I'm making money off of NFTs and, and the metaverse somehow because the company that I work for decided to do that thing. <laughs> Grasping as straws. It betrays a lot of stupidity, to be honest, right? A lot yeah. of like <laughs> naivete and, and yeah, also just like most. this inherent cynicism, you know, this idea that like, you know, as you were talking about, Molly, you know, the, the people assume a cynicism in the crypt, in, in the criticism because they're like, they're holding up a big mirror and, and pointing fingers at themselves, right? Being like, well, I'm in this for cynical reasons. So you must be against it for cynical reasons, right? And, and yeah, like, so I did kind of realize that. Like, like it felt like, you know, I was like, why do they assume I'm doing everything for money? And then I looked at it and I was like, well, they are trying to create a version of the web where you, everything you do is monetized. Right. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they might uh, sort of just think in that, in that general way. Tell this joke, uh, Noam Chomsky used to tell this joke where, you know, he would be like, who would come up with such a stupid vision of humanity where you're always constantly rationalizing every action that you do and weighing the opportunity cost? And it's like economists, of course, like only economists would be like, I will not work if you don't pay me like the X, X amount of money. That's far beyond what they actually would need to survive or be uh, comfortable or have some sort of fair increase, right? Because they're constantly graphing or mapping out uh, or reducing human activity and nuance to the level of graphing and overlays as opposed to like looking across the hall and seeing people who work like 70 60 hours just and they don't need to but they do because they're just like kind of obsessed with like some sort of research question I mean, it's also very like what you were talking about, Ed, about, you know, Vice getting in on the metaverse or whatever, and then people being like, hmm, hmm, you, uh, <laughs> yeah, you benefit from this. Like, you have something to tell us, Ed? <laughs> it also betrays this weird idea of like, 
uh, they like they don't understand that you are an employee of a company. Like you, you, you do not own the company. You are not an executive in the company. Right. It's like it's a it's a very weird understanding of a lot of things. Right. Like we approach like on TMK, Ed and I and Jeremy uh, tend to approach these things in terms of political economy. Right. So we're analyzing and we're critiquing them on that kind of aspect of trying to understand the political economy of these things, how they operate, um, you know, financially, how they kind of plug into capitalism and stuff. Um, uh, but I, what I really like as well about the approach that like you take Molly and other people um, like you, it, you know, that more like technological aspect as well, being like, no, this doesn't even make sense technically. You know, we're over here being like, this makes no sense financially, politically, economically. And you're like, yeah, and it makes no sense technically. Um, but I think it does also, I think you really got at something important here of that, like, it's really complex, but it's not even that it's comple- complex. It's like, it's convoluted. And I think that's two different things, right? Like they, they mistake a complexity for uh, it being something good, right? They they like hold complexity as a value in itself. If this thing yes. appears to be complex, then it must be good. It must be advanced. It must be high tech or whatever. But in reality, it appears to be more of like a Rube Goldberg device, right? Like it's intentional convolution um, for this like illusion of complexity, uh, which uh, does a number of things. It like makes it seem to be good, but also makes it really hard to question it. And it makes it really easy to dismiss any questioning because then you can be like, you don't understand this. And it also wards people away from trying to poke into it further because it appears to be this like tangled mess of stuff that you just can't like it's impenetrable so like i'm not the person to do it right like i don't have the expertise i don't have the experience and so i leave that to somebody else right or you just trust that whoever's trying to sell you this probably is the super genius who knows what they're talking about and you know no one but them can really understand it yeah it's it's a really interesting sort of fetishization of the technical side of things above everything else you know like most Companies do not build their business model around a type of database. You know, like no one's going out there and saying, you know, we've got this brand new MySQL database and this company is going to be better because we use this instead of that. You know, the last time we did that was like MongoDB's, you know, emergence onto the market. And it turned out that it was an alternative, but not really going to, you know, change the the shape of the web. Um, You know, now we have... The, the blockchain database, which if you actually look at the technology behind it, it is worse in almost all ways compared to the standard databases that most web companies use or non-web companies for that matter. Um, you know, it's slower. It doesn't scale at all. Uh, it's expensive as heck to run. You know, you have to pay gas fees if you're on Ethereum, you know, or, or whichever, whichever one you use. Um, And so, you know, you have to basically ask yourself, are all of these trade-offs worth it for the things that blockchains do very well, which is basically immutable storage uh, and decentralization, you know, and basically distributed storage is, is what we're talking about here. But if you look at a lot of the companies that people are talking about building or these products that people are talking about building on Web3, I would say probably the majority of them do not need those things. And some of them 
are made a lot worse by having those things, right? Like there's a reason we actually allow people to update information in databases or delete information from databases. It's because that's an actual useful thing to have to do in like 90% of use cases. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very bizarre that sort of people are like, we'll just sort of try to make this database work because it's a blockchain when they're actually trading off a huge amount of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of really negative trade-offs for having to do that. And it's like, why are you doing this? Why are you so beholden to this blockchain? You know, if you want to fix the problem that you're, you know, saying that you're trying to fix, why don't you start with the problem and then pick the technology from there? That's how we've always done it. And it works really well. <laughs> and I think that's the thing is they're not actually interested in fixing or solving that problem. They are interested in the solution, the technology, but not the problem. And so, right, it, it requires this like, ideological adherence to a technology that is fundamentally not not superior but inferior for a lot of its uses but you just have to devote so much time and energy and resources into supporting it because you are like ideologically tied to this technology and its success um, or you're tied to it for like financial gain, right? Like you have a financial interest in it. I mean, there's, there's like a very core irony here, I think as well. And the way that, you know, um, web three and DeFi, you know, decentralized finance, like really sets itself up as a, as a kind of a, a coup against, you know, not only web 2.0, but also, uh, fi- you know, Wall Street, traditional finance, right? TradFi. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they're, they're kind of set themselves up as the, you know, as the usurpers, as the replacements. Uh, you know, they're going to destroy TradFi. They're going to destroy the old giant digital platforms of yore and, and replace them. But in a lot of ways, it, it, they are, uh, like ironically replicating a lot of the same tactics and strategies. I mean, one of the things that made um, the, the 2008 financial crisis happen, uh, immensely convoluted and complex financial instruments um, that weren't actually solving any financial problems, but were just ways of creating instruments or technologies um, that made a lot of money for banks, right? Like, and, and in a lot of same ways as, you know, these financial instruments, these mortgage backed securities, you know, they're derivatives of derivatives. They're abstractions of abstractions. And I think we see this same exact thing happening in web three, where you see like these just multiple layers of abstraction, um, uh, on top of each other. And also at the same time, it does seem as if the complexity is by design. It becomes this, as we've talked about, this kind of like defense mechanism for um, telling people you can't, you can't regulate this, you can't analyze it, you can't critique it because you don't understand it. And so same exact kind of tactics playing out in Web3. Three. Now transition to all, to talking about the 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 edited latecomers guide because I think you know when we were talking about the um, the kind of media uh, 
you know, the, the approach that like journalists and commentators and people take to, to um, reporting on Web3, to writing about it, um, unlike with the financial crash and, and the, the kind of mortgage-backed securities and stuff, which, you know, a lot of people ignored because they didn't, either they didn't know exist or they didn't know how to understand it. Um, but at the same time, there was nobody, uh, you know, saying that you cannot critique Wall Street unless you own mortgage-backed securities, right? Unless you have a financial stake in this thing, then you can't possibly understand it or have good criticisms. But we do see this constantly with Web3, that you can't possibly understand this or talk about it unless you're a coiner, unless you have a stake in this thing. And we see this now as like a weird debate happening in journalism around like, you know, should journalists be allowed to own, you know, own tokens no. or own coins um, <laughs> yeah. and it, or, or not? And, you know, if they don't own to tokens or if they don't play around with, you know, buying some Bitcoin or making an NFT, um, then could they possibly understand it? And, I mean, I think one of the biggest proponents of this like pro coiner take to journalism is, you know, our old friend of the podcast, uh, Kevin Roos, who, you know, New York. Times is uh, you know really come out as one of the biggest um, at like proponents, but like these kind of like soft advocates, right? Likes to walk this balance of being like um, you know I'm on the fence, I'm neutral, I'm objective, um, but then routinely does things like writes 14,000 word um, explainer guides that are like an entire section of the Sunday New York Times um, that, you know, present a very rosy view of, of, of crypto and of Web3, but done so in this way that is like false, uh, false neutrality, false objectivity. Could talk, talk about, talk about the Kevin Roos, talk about this guide, talk about what it spurred you on to do. I, I, it drives me so up the wall, the sort of journalist discussion around like, we should be able to hold NFTs or, or trading crypto because like there are analogs to this in traditional finance with, you know, reporting on stocks, you know, or just companies that you have shares in. And, and it's pretty standard practice that you can't write about the companies that you have a stake in because you have a financial incentive to, to write positively about them. And so I don't really see why crypto is suddenly so different. You know, why why should you be able to hold Ethereum and then say, oh, Ethereum is, you know, going to go up this year or, you know, or write about these NFT projects that you hold NFTs for? Like, it, it makes no sense why that would be treated any differently. Um, it also makes no sense why you should have to buy an NFT to uh, be able to report on it. That's not how a lot of reporting works, right? Like you don't have to join the military to write about the military. You don't have to have, you know, firsthand experience with everything that you report on. That's just, it. journalists would not write about nearly as much as they do if that was the case, you know? So that's very bizarre to me. But yeah, to speak a little bit more specifically about this like crypto explainer that the New York Times recently published, um, I think a lot of people who hold fairly skeptical views around cryptocurrencies were pretty horrified to see that happen um, because it was such an enormous amount of, you know, newspaper real estate devoted to it. Um, it was very much describing itself as a neutral 
uh, explainer of all the crypto stuff. Like, finally, here's this neutral um, description of how all this stuff works that you've been waiting for this whole time. Um, but then it went on to be absolutely not neutral at all, you know. And Kevin Roos played, you know, lip service towards covering some of the more skeptical viewpoints or, you know, some of the questions that the skeptics have, but largely dismissed all of them. <laughs> Um, while on the other hand, he would say things like crypto fans believe that, you know, this will become a, a stable currency, even though there's absolutely no evidence for why that would ever be the case. There's no, you know, um, factor in the economics of something like Bitcoin that would encourage it to stabilize. But he just sort of um, repeated those things without any question. And so I think we were all really frustrated to see that, especially in such a sort of prominent publication, not only in a prominent publication, but in the Sunday, you know, times with this whole little section in the print uh, version of it, you know, a pretty massive audience there. Um, and so I sort of invited some of the other people that I know are doing really wonderful work you know, asking some of the tough questions around uh, crypto. And, you know, I tried to get people who were coming at it from fairly different viewpoints. So there were a couple of technologists, there were a couple of people with more of an economic standpoint on things. Um, there were some ethicists in there. Um, and we basically just threw it in like a Google Doc and sort of wrote in the comments, you know, in the margins, we basically did the editing that we felt like the New York Times just completely didn't do. And then I sort of collated a bunch of that and 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 published it in a slightly edited version, but it 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 very much resembled the original document with the, you know, comments and people responding to each other or, you know, building on thoughts that other people had. Um, which I felt I felt like was a fairly effective format for something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's I when I saw uh, you post this online, I, I think I, I commented. I was like, "This this is literally the only possible way I would ever read uh, this, you know, <laughs> this latecomer's guide is the annotated version." Because, like, you know, I, I saw this uh, I saw this thing get posted. And I was like, oh, no, here we go. And then I saw the scroll bar. I, op you know, I opened it up and then I saw the scroll bar on the right-hand side. I said, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and not even that, it's got extra sections at the yeah. end. We didn't, we didn't even annotate the whole thing because most of us absolutely were exhausted by the time we got through the first part of it. Um, I was shocked that the New York Times gave him that much space. I mean, when, when do they ever devote that much space to any single topic? No, never. I mean, it's, uh, is wild. It's like, okay, there's a DeFi section, a Web3 section, a DAO section, an NFT section, and then the whole entire latecomer thing. And then the week before, after just him publishing, what was the column? Oh, uh, Bitcoin was made for this moment. Why isn't it for <laughs> yes. me? <laughs> yeah, and he has, I would say, kind of a history of this. You know, I've actually gone back and forth with him a little bit on these types of things because I, I you know, this is not the first time I've basically said that I feel like his re reporting on crypto has been irresponsible. Um, you know, we had a conversation on Twitter a while ago when um, it was when he was posting about how he felt like journalists should be able to own crypto. And I pointed out to him that he had written a piece about an NFT project called Pudgy Penguins that um, was done in just a really irresponsible way. He First of all, he asked the 
project's like creator, one of the project team members, like, how could I go about getting one of these NFTs, you know, if I if I didn't have the budget to do it or, or whatever. And then he was like, ooh, the guy, like, oops, the guy gave me an NFT. And it's like, yeah, because you're a New York Times reporter asking, you know, about this project and he wants you to cover it in a positive way. And then he literally in that article writes about how he joined the Discord and everyone was so excited that a New York Times reporter was there. And he literally says it was because they thought that positive reporting about their project would make the project more popular. And I, you know, I saw him write that and I was like, and no alarm bells went off in your head there that like yeah. maybe there was a conflict happening here. Like that didn't make your editor sort of think twice about this. Um, and sure enough, the the project did enjoy a bit of a spike in popularity around when the New York Times published the piece. And then later on, the project founders tried to scam people. They tried to basically, they like funneled all the money out of the sort of corporation or whatever, the entity that controlled the NFTs and then tried to sort of quietly sell that worthless piece of company to some other collector for an enormous amount of money. And like they had sort of built this reputation on the New York Times reporting. They still use the fact that they were written about in the New York Times to market their NFT collection. And of course, Kevin Roots didn't come back and write an article about the scam thing or the fact that basically everyone who invested as a result of the New York Times article would have lost money if they held the NFT for any amount of time. He just sort of writes about things, pumps them up, and then sort of moves on to the next shiny thing, it feels like. It, it is it is very... I, I, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's very irresponsible. It betrays like... It is this very like wide-eyed naivete, like you know, he makes himself a willful, useful idiot for these for these topics. But it's all, but I think you're right as well. It's like we can and should heap a lot of criticism on Kevin Roos and the way that he reports and conducts himself and the really you know thin justifications and and you know arguments he gives for for this. Um, but it does also, I think, there is also a lot of responsibility that goes to. Yeah, the editors and publishers of the New York Times that for whatever reason are invested in allowing him to do this, giving him the space to do it, giving him the resources. And I think it does betray as well something that still plagues the way that technology is covered. And it's something and it, it, it gets to the heart of Web3 um, is that, you know, as you were talking about, right, like fi a financial journalist. There's no way this would be allowed, right? Um, to, to be able to say, oh, well, you know, they gave me some shares in this company to play around with, uh, while I was writing a piece of, you know, a, a profile puff piece about them. And not only that, but they said I can't responsibly cover the project unless I own shares in the company. That's another one. Yeah. Exactly. And they, and you know, Kevin Roos will do things like, okay, yeah, but you know, I gave it back. You know, but I gave back the NFT afterwards or, you know, somebody airdropped me some coins. Um, and, but, you know, I gave, I gave the coins back. It's fine. Um, and what I think it betrays is that, you know, there's these well established, uh, standards and rules and best practices and financial reporting and what ethics and financial reporting looks like that just simply are not present in technology reporting. And in fact, quite the opposite, where there is a culture of 
tech of like technology gadget reviews where you do get sent a free gadget to play around with so that you can then write about it. Um, and then the, uh, the idea is that the responsibility is on you to be objective in your review of this technology and, and disclose, you know, this company gave it to, to us for free and then we gave it away or we gave it back or whatever. I think that is, that is how they approach it, right? That's, that's the kind of like ethics that they're approaching these things as just gadget reviews. But, they are not talking about gadgets, right? Uh, they're talking about, uh, you know, investment vehicles and securities and assets and, you know, things that are uh, 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 wanting to be, you know, currency, right? Money. Like it's something that I think the tech sector has for a very long time um, played on and benefited, which is that we're a technology company. You know, it's Uber saying we're not a taxi company, we're a technology company, you know, and 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 so the rules are different. And it, it, it seems really wild that something like Web3, which is so transparently like financial, right? I mean, they call it DeFi, it's decentralized finance. Like it's so transparently securities and assets and investment vehicles and things like that. But then they still want to say, no, 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 this is technology. And the reporters covering it say, no, 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 this is a gadget review. I don't know, like there's there's something really bizarre here about that continual conflation. And I don't know how it is able to stand up to well it doesn't stand up to any scrutiny but apparently that doesn't matter yeah i mean it's really bizarre to see and you know i have been happy to see that some publications have taken a little bit more of a responsible view towards it like i know the verge includes now in their ethics policy that no none of their journalists can hold or trade uh, cryptocurrencies which i think is very responsible at least for the journalists who are writing about those things you know i don't doesn't bother me too much if, if, you know, someone writing about totally unrelated things holds it or not. But I think that's important. You know, I think there needs to be a separation like that. But for some reason, it, it feels like all of these companies have, uh, or all of these sort of tech outlets have, have just sort of been really slow on the uptake there. Um, and even Kevin Roos in his, you know, he did a big Twitter thread about how he felt like journalists should be allowed to hold crypto. He acknowledged outright that it has, he said something like it has a strong biasing effect to hold crypto or NFTs or whatever. And so what's the upside here? Like <laughs> we are getting this biasing effect on your reporting for what? So that you can make some money? Like, that is not convincing at all. I, 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 there's some sort of mental gymnastics happening around it where they're, they're trying to convince themselves that it's it's somehow an ethical thing to do, which I, I really don't think it is. It seems like there's this idea that if you disclose the biasing effect, then it's fine. Um, then you're at least recognizing it, but it only goes one way, right? Like if you disclose a positive bias, then that's fine. Um, but if you disclose a negative bias in the sense that like, well, I'm critical or I'm skeptical of this, then that, that becomes, you know, a target for, for pylons. And in fact, I want to ask you, uh, like what has been some of the responses to Web3 is going just great? Like I, I know, for example, you in the about page for the, for the project, you say, you know, if you are looking for an unbiased descriptor of Web3 and related technologies, there are short ones in the glossary, but that is not the goal of this site. You know, I would recommend Wikipedia and we'll talk about that. Um, or <laughs> if you would like to see a version of this website that takes a different approach or covers a different topic, this is all open source. So please feel free to fork the code and make your own. 
I, I, I've seen you in the tw- in, on Twitter, like getting into these arguments with people that essentially are being like, you're biased and you're being like, yeah, I am. I'm skeptical and I'm yes, critical. And clearly. if you want something different, <laughs> then make your own. And they're like, yeah, no, right. I want you to make it. <laughs> yes. I, that drives me up the wall it, when people are like, so take all of the time that you've been spending on this and then apply it to all of traditional finance. And it's like, why? For what? <laughs> like, I have, that is not my thing. I have no interest in doing that. You can do that by all means. And I've already made it easier for you to do that because you can just reuse my code. Um, it's such a weird sort of entitled thing to say. You know, It's like if you went up to an author and you said, Hey, I didn't like your book. You should have written a total like you should write this book about something totally different. It's like, why? Why don't you write it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, it was a point that I was about to make. I was just walking. Imagine walking up to your favorite uh, rapper and telling him, "Like, man, your your flows just they don't. You need to. They need to sound like this." But I don't want to do it. You do it. Yeah, yeah. please. I just expect the response and see the response. I mean, this is actually a trope. I'm an I'm an academic, uh, you know, and so I'm like, you know, my my trade is publishing peer reviewed, you know, journal articles and things like that. And this is actually a trope in the like in reviews of articles is that it essentially boils down to this is not the article I would have written, and <laughs> and you know, and I'm going to reject this article um, because you should have written it in this way. It's like, well, you do that then. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you go out and do the research. You do the work and you write this thing. I think you're right. It is very much an entitled kind of aspect of like, you know, I can't believe something exists in the world that doesn't conform to the exact way that I would have covered it or I would have thought about it. Um, But I also don't want to do the work to make that thing exist in the world. And I'm sure it's, uh, I'm 100% positive it's only compounded by the fact that you are a woman in tech who, who deems to uh, have the authority and, and expertise to um, to speak negatively about these things. Yeah, I run into that a lot where people, they'll basically say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Let me explain to you what a smart contract is. And it's like, please do. I definitely have not encountered that term in the past couple of months, you know. Um, I saw it the other day. It wasn't even just me. There was a... There was a um, sort of a blockchain based project that had some white paper that they had sent around to a bunch of the sort of skeptical community. And it was some like heavy hitters in the tech industry. Like Grady Booch was one of them. He's like a titan of software engineering and software architecture. And at one point, uh, you know, a couple of people mentioned some questions they had with the white paper around how it was going to allegedly solve as yet unsolved problems in computer science, which is, you know, a bit of a big deal. Um, and the the people behind this organization were like, first of all, here's the Wikipedia article for logic in computing. And it was like, oh, come on. You know, like <laughs> everyone in the thread that you're talking to has a computer science degree. Some of these people practically like created the field. Like, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> Um, but it's all, I think, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, it's sort of a part of this um, extremely common belief where um, if you are critical, it means that you don't understand even the most fundamental portions of it. And like you said, I think there is some piece of it that's like, if you're a woman, then your poor girl brain definitely is just not <laughs> capable of understanding something so complex as a data store, 
you know, um, which is really frustrating. It, it definitely grinds my gears a little bit, but you know, it's also the Twitter mute feature is a godsend. <laughs> and block. The block yeah. is a godsend too. Yeah. There's so much close policing of the boundaries of who has expertise and authority, which I think runs really counter to the decentralization and democratization ideologies at the heart of this. this, this. my segue here. I want to instead talk about a project that does actually seem to embody more so that decentralized and democratized approach, um, which is Wikipedia, right? And I know you, you know, you are a uh, Wikipedia editor and you've spent a lot of time, um, you know, researching and writing Wikipedia articles. I know you've also been on different committees and things like that in the Wikipedia Foundation and stuff. And so I, I would, I would love to hear more about your work, uh, in, you know, on Wikipedia and also just like, yeah, what, like, how does or, or doesn't, you know, Wikipedia actually, you know, uh, present a different alternative um, that's not, you know, the recipient of, you know, $500 million from Andreessen Horowitz, but does actually, in a lot of ways, I think, live up to the ideologies they espouse around, like, decentralization and democratizing, you know, access to information and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love so much about Wikipedia is the goal of the project is to create a free source of knowledge that anyone can access. You know, if you have an internet connection, you should be able to pull up Wikipedia. If you don't have an internet connection, there are also projects to make it so that you can have access to Wikipedia. And, you know, the idea is that everyone should have access to encyclopedic styled knowledge on anything that you know, you could really think of. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. I think that, you know, there's far too much limiting uh, limits on access to knowledge in just society in general. You know, you either have to pay tuition to go to a school, you have to pay for the paywalled access to something like news articles or academic journals or whichever, you know, you have to buy a book off of Amazon or, or whatever it is. And I think that, you know, it's really key that basic knowledge, just facts be available to anyone who wants to go find them. And I think Wikipedia does a really good job of trying to stay um, as neutral as possible on those types of things by avoiding some of the pitfalls that I think we've seen in Web 2, you might call it, you know, that a lot of these Web 3 folks are really railing against. It's all about the data collection, the advertising, selling your personal information, all of those things. But if you go to Wikipedia, you know, you're not going to see an ad you might see a request for a donation to the Wikimedia Foundation if it's that time of the year, and you can turn those off if you so desire. But for the most part, you know, it's just there to provide a resource to you. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think we need more of that in the web. Um, we don't need more of these projects that hyper-financialize everything that you do. I don't think you should be paid for every edit that you do or that you should have to pay you know, to view these pages, you know, or, or whatever, whatever the sort of web three version of Wikipedia is, I think sounds really pretty terrible. Um, you know, I, I actually, this sort of 
comes as a shock to a lot of people in the crypto communities for some reason, but I share a lot of the same ideals as Web3. I think decentralization is perfectly good. I think that, you know, democratizing access to finance or to knowledge or to whichever thing that you happen to be working on in your Web3 project generally is a very good thing. Um, And I just, my question is that I don't think that the blockchain-based projects that people are starting to talk about actually do what they say they do. I don't think there will be more access to things. I think there will be access to things for the people who can afford to buy the token. And that that is not something I'm willing to accept that, you know, someone should have to buy a token to just participate in something so simple as, you know, reading an encyclopedia article. Do you envision that there are or that there could be use cases for blockchain based technology in um, pursuit of democratization or ease of access to this or that commons? I don't really think so. Um, I can see the arguments for things like decentralization, uh, you know, without the blockchain, but, you know, distributing storage of information across a bunch of different servers, you know, P2P file sharing, um, technologies even like IPFS, which have become really popular in the Web3 communities. You know, I think there actually are very like good use cases for decentralized storage and those types of things. I don't think that adding a token to them improves it, uh, the system in any way. In fact, I think that's where things really start to fall apart. So no, I mean, I don't, I don't see the, the benefits of adding blockchains to things. You, you basically have to add the financial incentive. And as soon as you add a financial incentive to something like Wikipedia, I think the whole thing just starts to fall apart. It's hard. It's both hard and horrifying to think about like what a web on chain actually looks like. You know, like if if uh, you know you mentioned like you know P to P file sharing. You know, it's like what if Napster instead of being peer to peer was you know uh, a blockchain initiative, and then that suddenly becomes you know some uh, you know early uh, infrastructure or architecture for the web, like, you know, imagining like an alternative history where all of this stuff actually happened much earlier and actually took off. Um, like what would the web look like now in that vision? And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine because it seems like it would be really different, but it's also horrifying to imagine because I think it would be this like hyper financialized system that's like, you know, just we already talk about like the the problem with like walled gardens and and, and gatekeeping and things like that. And it, I think you're right that none that none of these projects actually live up to the ideals they espouse. If anything, they uh, intensify the exact opposite um, of what they espouse. Like there would be no Wikipedia if it had to be on chain or if you had to have um, tokens to access or edit it. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point that you bring up about things like Napster, or the peer-to-peer stuff, because, you know, those technologies have existed for a very long time. You know, Napster was around quite a while ago. You know, we've had Tor, we've had uh, the BitTorrent network or protocol, you know, and all of those things exist. Um, and you talk about, you know, can you imagine if the web had been based on those? And there was an opportunity for it to be. You know, it could have been that everyone uses Tor and the Onion Network or, you know, everyone gets their music off of uh, Napster or whatever it is. Um, There's also a reason that that didn't happen, though, which is that 
those types of technologies, like highly, highly decentralized technologies tend to be very hard to use because, you know, if you've ever tried to torrent something, you're already probably more technically adept than like the average person. Uh, It's not super easy to do, despite the fact that there are multiple torrent clients you can pick from, there are multiple websites that host the magnet links and all these things. Uh, And it turns out that like now most people just use Netflix or, you know, Spotify or whatever it is. And that's not because, um, you know, Spotify like totally controls the market and somehow like shut down BitTorrent or something. It's because it's very easy to use because it's centralized and there's, you know, a a client that you can connect to and you can just stream what you want to listen to. You don't have to go find the magnet link. You know, it's, it's this whole thing. Um, And I think the people who are talking about these highly decentralized services, you know, and these, these sort of web three services are really overlooking that quite a lot. Um, There's an enormous amount of technical knowledge that's required to do the types of things that people are talking about. Just to turn money into a token that you can use on one of these services is like a five-step process. And you have to do it perfectly or else you might lose that money. And I think people sort of haven't considered how that's going to achieve widespread adoption in the ways that they want it to. The ways that it has started to achieve wider adoption are through things like Coinbase and Binance and these different exchanges that a lot of the, you know, ideological folks who are pushing for crypto to be the future of everything deride. You know, they say you should never use Coinbase because then you you have to give up your identity and they know who you are and it's totally against the whole thing. So it's like they're sort of simultaneously saying that everyone and their grandma is going to use this new technology while also completely rejecting the the, um, software that sort of makes it possible for someone like your grandma to use it. Uh, And I I don't think I know how they're going to overcome that. Um, You know, there's a very centralizing effect of uh, trying to make things easier to use because centralization allows for things like scalability and for speed and for you know better user experience. And so those those two things are very diametrically opposed, I think. I think this is a really excellent point. It really it also uh, uh, jives really well with you know um, Moxie Marlin Spike, right? The you know then CEO found you know co-founder of Signal in that in that widely shared um, essay, you know, kind of critiquing Web three. This was essentially like the core criticism here is that there's. A, there's actually a centralization effect already happening, um, whether it is you know Coin, Coinbase or Binance with crypto or like OpenSea um, for mm-hmm. NFTs, right? Like there is this already. We see a centralization effect happening with, and and for good reason, for all the reasons you outline, where there there is a trade off here, and centralization makes it re- much easier to use, and it makes it you know there's one clearinghouse that you have to go to. Um, there's mm-hmm. one one uh you know gatekeeper that yeah you have to pay a toll to access you know um but you then you get access to the thing and instead it does i think really belie 
a, a core tension at the heart of Web3, which is the, the, the actual ideological adherence to it who are like, you know, you should never use Coinbase. You should never use Binance. Like you should never do any of these things because they go fundamentally against the, uh, the ideology and the politics and the values that we want to promote with Web3. And then on the other hand, you see, um, the people who, uh, are just as loud, if not louder, advocates for it. Um, and again, you know, I'm thinking of Andreessen Horowitz. They're not alone, but they are certainly the vanguard here, and they are way out ahead of a lot of the other like coterie of of venture capitalists and the celebrities and, and uh, entrepreneurs and founders and people who are really driving this forward. They, you know, they are spending a lot of money on political lobbying. Why? Because they want to make Web3 and crypto in particular legitimate. They want it to be regulated. They want it to be recognized by the state um, because that makes it a legitimate uh, uh, asset that you can hold. It makes property rights around that thing legally enforceable. Uh, you know, it makes all the grifts and scams that we're seeing. Well, now the FBI can, you know, go after people for that, right? Like they want to, they want that legitimacy. They want that centralization. Well, they want the centralization because they want to own stakes in the centralizers and they want that state-based legitimacy um, because they want the police to enforce uh, their property right over these things. It, it, there's a, there, there's such a clear contradiction here in terms. It's also, you know, it's also like people like Chris Dixon, you know, again, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz talking about how like, you know, he sees a dystopia where the metaverse is owned and operated by Meta Platforms Inc. Not talking about the fact that Andreessen, Mark Andreessen sits on the board of Meta, you know, of Facebook. And it's like, there's such clear contradictions here. They are so clearly talking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, and yet, it continues to happen. Yet, people continue to get behind it. And I don't know if they... I'm sure it's a, a, a confluence of different things going on where some people don't recognize the contradictions at play here. Some people think maybe this is, you know, these, these are, um, you know, the, the, the enemies of my enemy or my friend, you know, kind of thing, or they'll push it ahead a little bit and then we can, then we can break apart, you know, then, then, you know, we, we can just take advantage of them or so. I don't, I'm sure it's a mixture of different things going on. But at the, but at the heart of it, there's an unresolved contradiction, as there are so many unresolved contradictions <laughs> at the heart of capitalism. But this seems to be a really clear and present unresolved contradiction at the heart of Web3 um, that, that nobody wants to recognize, nobody wants to talk about, um, because it could be the one block you pull out and the whole tower falls down. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It's it's extremely weird to watch the venture capitalists and the the multi-millionaires, even billionaires, uh, who have sort of made their wealth from crypto uh, start to sort of parrot the ideological talking points of distribution of wealth and, you know, a fairer society and, and all of these things when... You know, it's like, don't you see that you are exactly the thing that you're talking about here that you're trying to avoid? And it, it's it's all, you know, you are doing what you are saying that, sh you know, should not be happening. 
it's I get very confused and annoyed, I would say, with the the more ideological side of it that starts to talk about things like social good and, you know, democratization of wealth and, you know, banking the unbanked and a lot of these sort of buzzwords that tend to come up in the Web3 discourse, I guess. You know, when someone's talking about the sort of libertarian ideology, I'm like, okay, I get that. I understand why you would use cryptocurrency to try to achieve those goals. But when someone starts to almost go in the leftist direction with it and start talking about, you know, social uh, social programs, you know, there was almost like universal basic income was something that one of these projects was trying to achieve. I don't understand how you're taking this like enormously capitalist uh, enormously libertarian, basically anarcho-capitalist uh, technology, and then suddenly you wave a magic wand and you've achieved a freer society. You know, it, it's like wh- where is this middle step that you're not explaining? Where suddenly this this technology that absolutely encourages the like hyper concentration of wealth suddenly result like results in everyone having more financial freedom that that doesn't just naturally happen, you know? <laughs> and um, with the with all the VCs getting in on it, I also don't understand why people are sort of just taking them at face value when they start to repeat those same talking points. It's like, do we think that Andreessen Horowitz suddenly just decided they want to help out the little guy? Like, where is that motivation coming from? It's, why don't you expect that they are treating it the same way that they've treated all of their other investments, which is a mechanism for the, for themselves to make a lot of money. Um, so I get, I don't know. I get really frustrated with some of that stuff. Why do you think, I mean, like why is there a reluctance to see some of the largest investors in DAOs, NFTs in DeFi and crypto projects are individuals who pride themselves on enriching themselves on their investments and who are loudly cutthroat and vicious with what they believe, how they believe VC and capitalism work. They they are out loud in public about how they believe it's it works more or less like a lottery system, but that it's an integral part of capitalism. And so it's not so much that they believe in everything that they're investing in, it's they believe that some of it's going to make them a lot of money. Yeah. I mean... I don't understand why people take them at face value is I think is what it comes down to. Um, there's, there's nothing that's changed in their motivations. They are again, trying to make a lot of money and I think they've found a pretty great way of doing it. You know, there's a lot of money going into crypto right now. And so it's, I, I, I am baffled by it. I think that just sort of the willingness to accept, uh, those, those people sort of doing one thing and saying another, I mean, it, it, you know, to be to be the cynic that they accuse us of being. I mean, I think it is also a lot of it does really come down to they think that they're throwing their lot in with the winner, right? They don't right. want to be a loser, and they think they're they're winning, and they think you know, yes, we recognize that this is a casino economy, or yes, we. I mean, you see a lot of big proponents of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies um, being like. Yeah, this is a Ponzi scheme and I'm at the top of it, right? Or, or yeah. yeah, this, you know, and, and I think that, that is a lot of it as well is that they are like, I'm not a loser. I'm a winner and I'm, I'm able to pick winners. Uh, and, and all of my friends are winners and you can join us at the winning circle or, uh, have fun being poor, you know, <laughs> as they are so, so, so want to say. It gets to a lot of the really like, 
the absurdist memes and, and ways that they talk about or talk with each other as well is that, you know, we're going to make it or not going to make it. Right. And yeah. it really is that that binary view of society of winners and losers, um, haves and haves nots, makers and takers. And I think that they uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I do think that a lot of the the uh, really peer ideologues um, are a pretty small minority. Um, at Absolutely. the end of the day. And really, it does come down to uh, wanting to have this view of, you know, building a type of society where you are at the top of it and you are a winner. Like, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was, uh, you know, is working in Web3 and, you know, is actually one of these people who is like, you know, there there could be something valuable here in terms of like thinking about alternative modes of governance and stuff like that. They went to uh, the Ethereum Denver meetup and were like quite appalled at like how baldly and blatantly everybody there was just interested in financializing, commodifying and monetizing everything and 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 everybody um via this like vision of the of web3 yeah i it's, it's funny i actually have almost more patience for those people or like i'm i'm more willing to uh acknowledge them i guess like they the people who are saying yeah it's a ponzi scheme and i'm just here because i want to get rich it's like okay <laughs> at least you are saying you know you were speaking the, your true intentions, and I respect that. Same thing goes for the ideologues. You know, if there are people who truly believe that, uh, you know, the government should have no oversight of finance, doesn't matter if it's money laundering, it doesn't matter if someone's, you know, paying, you know, to take a hit out on someone, it doesn't matter if, you know, the taxes go towards the benefit of society. It's like, okay, I don't agree with you, but you're consistent. And, you know, I can respect that. I think it's the people in the middle. And I think the people in the middle are the vast majority of the people in the sort of crypto web three space who are trying to sort of take the best of both worlds, you know, the, the ideological side of it, but not to the point where it gets too extreme, you know, and then the money making part of it, but only so much that it, you know, gives me the money to, to make society better or whatever. And those folks are trying to sort of, um, walk this tightrope that, you know, it's not too uh, ideological, but it's just enough that it sounds like they're doing something, you know, noble. And then also the financial side of things where it's like, oh, well, if I get rich, that's great too. But they, they, they are the ones who are holding beliefs that I think are inherently contradictory. And the, the sort of bizarrely, uh, the unwillingness to sort of examine those views and, and how they contradict is, is very frustrating to me. I don't know. I, I, I can, I, I can see why someone would be sort of, uh, repulsed by the, you know, uh, extreme hyper, you know, uh, meme culture, you know, number go up type of thing. But for me, it's like, well, at least they're honest, you know? <laughs> there is a kind of an irony here as well. I mean, I think it comes out in like the time profile of Vitalik Buterin and, and, you know, and anything you ever like hear or read, uh, hear about or, or read from him, where he does seem to uh, increasingly become one of these people who is somewhat repulsed by uh, what Web3 and Ethereum is becoming. Like he, what well, he is in that minority, uh, in, in a, I think in a lot of a lot more ways than a lot of other people of like a consistent ideologue, um, and is like having to really 
like like uh, Frankenstein, confront the monster that he created and be like, God damn it, what have I done? What have I wrought with my own hands? Yeah, I found that piece very interesting, especially because it seems like he was sort of coming up against those types of people from the very beginning. You know, they talked about how the people he created the, the sort of initial code base with were all trying to sort of maximize their wealth and, and, uh, you know, make, you know, structure the whole thing such that they could make a lot of money out of it. And so some of me sort of questions how much, um, there's, there's a lot of sort of willingness to accept, uh, his, naivety i think uh that has been granted to him i think so too i think it also helps that because he was like prolific it seemed you know for for some time uh thinking through some of issues some of the issues that there's this kind of sense that like oh well you know if he thought that deeply about how to structure ethereum and what sort of applications and features are necessary for it then he must then maybe it truly was an oversight uh, to have thrown in his lot with people who went on to try and, like you said, maximize how much they could pull out of this ecosystem, create other ecosystems, which um, are clearly for just like maximizing the amount of money that's sloshing around for everyone involved. On that, I would say, you know, you also see the same thing happening and you, you see the same thing in like open source where people will create some software and then it enables something they had no intentions of you know, allowing to have happen. And there's sort of only so much you can do to really like put the, what is it? Put the cat back in the bag or something. Yeah, like that. Put the genie um, back in the bottle. The toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I haven't fully formed my opinion on that one, but I, I do think people are very willing to sort of uh, see those, the original founders as sort of these pure ideologues with, you know, basically very naive views on society and, you know, and, and not sort of question why they didn't put a little more thought into those types of things. Yeah, the analogy with open source, or and I think here it's like free software versus open source software in a lot of ways, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised if like, uh, you know, Vitalik Buterin ends up becoming like a, a Richard Stallman of Web3, right? <laughs> like his own like ideological purity, but also naivete kind of like drives him insane and yeah. <laughs> drives him. I mean, I think he already exhibits some of those uh, same tendencies of, of Richard Stallman in a lot of ways. But like I've had some interactions uh, with with Richard Stallman, which I always walk away from being like, well, that that was an experience. That was uh, <laughs> that was very interesting. <laughs> yes, I have had those same interactions with Mr. Stallman. Um, and he's another one of those people, honestly, who's like, he holds some pretty bananas views and he's willing to take things to an absolute extreme to the, you know, to the point that it's actually very harmful, but it's like, well, at least he's sort of open about that, you know, and he sort of acknowledge he's not trying to sort of, uh, walk this weird line between like just the good parts of his ideology. He, he will, he will say things that, to most people, at least, are are clearly very negative. I, I don't don't always know if he sees the negative in them in the <laughs> same way, but um, it is sort of an interesting comparison, I would say. Yeah, I think that's there's a subject of study there for you know for for, for much much deeper comparison. It is very interesting. I mean, I think one of the the big 
the big uh, differences is that um, Stallman did not become a billionaire um, through his um, holding of something that he created early on. Whereas Vitalik Buterin, I don't think he's quite a billionaire, but I think he holds about $800 million of Ethereum or something like that. So, you know, close, close enough. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of money, whatever it is. But Like even thinking about, I mean... You know, maybe may, may a topic for a different episode for sure. But just even like, you know, I brought up the Moxie Marlin Spike essay and, you know, Vitalik Buterin wrote a like a very long reply to that in like a Reddit post, uh, which is also very funny that you have to like go to Reddit to see his like long response essay to Moxie. But um, like I fundamentally disagree with him on like essentially every factor, but at it, but you can really see, I think, an ideological consistency and a willingness to ad, ad, adhere to a view or a value and then just like single-mindedly push it to its, its, like, its, its logical conclusion. Um, and, you know, I think I fundamentally disagree with the axioms that he holds, but you can see how he reaches the conclusions that he gets to. Yeah. I think one of the biggest problems, though, in, in the sort of crypto sphere is the people who try to adopt the same ideological talking points as, as, as true ideologues like him, um, but don't hold those very extreme beliefs, you know, to the same, to the same level. I think, I think that's very interesting. Like, um, I use the example sometimes of the immutability of a blockchain you know, immutability in software is something that requires a level of extremism, I would say, to, to decide that you're going to create truly immutable software, especially when it comes to things like user-generated content. So recently, some of the Web3, uh, you know, projects that I've been seeing people come up with are ideas of things like social networks on the blockchain or messaging applications on the blockchain or various other sort of uh, projects that would require storing user-generated content on a blockchain. And, you know, blockchains, by definition, are immutable, right? The, the information that is stored to them, once it is validated, is there forever. Um, you can't edit it. You can't delete it. You know, it, it, it will remain. Uh, and so if you talk to someone who is behind one of these social networks and you start to sort of prod on that a little bit... You know, usually the first things they'll talk about are just, you know, it's censorship resistant. You won't be canceled. I see that a lot. Uh, you know, no one can silence you like they can on Twitter or Facebook or, or, you know, whichever other social media they choose to compare it to. But if you really keep digging a little bit and you try to sort of get a sense of how far that extremism will go and, and how truly devoted they are to that idea of immutability, you know, they're there do exist people who think no matter what someone uploads, it should never be removed. They are not the majority of people. Like most people would agree that, you know, if there's a social network and someone can take their mom's home address and like upload it to that social network, then uh, maybe we should really rethink things a little bit. But the problem is when you choose a technology that is so extreme, basically, you know, it is either immutable or it's not. There's no mostly immutable because that's that's just different. That's that's not immutable. <laughs> then you really start to these things really start to fall apart. And, you know, so people will start to talk about how, oh, well, maybe, you know, just in really extreme cases, we'll, you know, be able to delete things or, or we'll distribute it so that there's a DAO behind the decision to delete things. And then it's like, 
So why don't you just use a regular database then with normal capabilities that you don't have to fight against every step of the way? Um, so I, I find that really interesting. Uh, I, I, for one, am one of those sickos that wish that Twitter, uh, once you post something, you can't delete it. I mean, you can't edit it, so it might as well stay there for <laughs> you know for everyone to see your bad grammar, your bad spelling, but also your horribly bad takes that you can't just quickly delete when people realize that you're you know, you got, you got a bad point of view on something. This would be horrible, Jeremy. I love, dele- I love tweeting and deleting. <laughs> I don't think I've deleted a single tweet. Now that I think about it, you just got it. You just got to mainline the, the ether. <laughs> and not all it. of us are born to shit posts like you. It's <laughs> Ed, like a top tier YOLO shit poster. <laughs> I will tweet it. Fire off that tweet and then silence your phone and see what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. Then you end up with hundreds of people yelling at you and also tagging Molly being like, look at what this motherfucker said. And, then, <laughs> and that motherfucker was me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Beautiful moment. You had like crossover into angry Reddit territory. I have like friends that were like, isn't this your brother? What what the (laughs) fuck is wrong with him? This has been great. We are definitely running up at time. Um, is there anything anything you want to leave us on, Molly? Anything we didn't get to that you didn't get to say or anything you want to reemphasize before we let you go? I don't know. I think we just about covered it. <laughs> yeah, th- this has been really great. I mean, we could. there's so much more to talk about. I think we have covered so much ground here. Um, a really nice bookend, I think, of like, you really can't understand Web3 without understanding not only the like obviously the ideologies that are propelling it, but also those internal contradictions and the the ideological contradictions. You know, it's like ideologies of convenience is what I think a lot of this really boils down to, especially the talk about decentralization and democratization, the talk about immutability. You know, a lot of this, I think, does boil down to um, kind of, yeah, cynical convenience of like, you know, using these values, wielding them like a cudgel against your foes, but then putting them up when they don't benefit you anymore. Absolutely. Yes. With that, thank you so much for joining us, Molly. Um, where can people find you? Any, anything you would like to plug at this time? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter username is Molly zero X F F F. And then I also have my web three is going great.com website, as well as my mollywhite.net website where I do some blogging uh, in sort of a longer form format. Yeah. We didn't even really get to talk about your, your blogging, but Molly writes really interesting stuff. I've learned a lot and have really appreciated that. So I'll, I'll definitely add, uh, we'll have links to all of that in the episode description. Um, and you can find us, dear listener, at patreon.com slash this machine kills. Um, we, you know, we are one of those critics that also, that makes money on our criticism. <laughs> <laughs> You're making That's those right. big no coiner bucks. <laughs> That's, That's right. right. That's 
right. It's pure fiat, baby. And you can, do, <laughs> and you can, you can, uh, subscribe using fiat at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where in return, you will get another premium episode every single week. Um, so find us there. Uh, and so until then, see ya. Adios.